Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. Tonight is Thursday, March 17th, 2022, and we're going to jump right into Scripture. Come on. Turn with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. We're going to read this to you from the ESV. Say there as you are turning there. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 from the ESV says, be watchful. Somebody say, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Say, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and Act be strong. Like Come on now. That's what God has for us tonight. Church, it is time that we increase our watchfulness. Can you tell that that is exactly what God is doing in our midst, in our own lives, so that we can learn how to actually stand firm in the faith? Then we're able to have the actions of real men. Somebody say, like a real man. Like a real man. See, like a real man of faith, then you're able to actually stand strong. This is not macho posturing. This is the ability for you to be able to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith so that you can actually act like a man of God. Yeah. There are amazing things happening in your life. Amen? Yeah. This should be no surprise to you. As you look at your own broken state, like a man, right, Abimbola? Like a man. Like a man. You're gaining a greater revelation of the distance between your current station and the holiness of Adonai. See, church, we are in truth. We're sons of God, but we're also very much sons of men. Isn't that true? See, living in the tension between these two truths is a sobering experience. Is anybody becoming sober and more sober, more watchful in your thinking? Aye. Aye. <laughs> Particularly... It's particularly difficult, it's particularly tense if you're not giving up on either the fact that you are a son of God or the fact that you are a son of man. The reality of having a sober view of your actual current state in Christ and, somebody say and, and holding on to the powerful promise of Adonai, being able to do both simultaneously, it's everything. Everything. Without a specific sober view of your actual state, you lose all drive and ability to recognize your need for the ongoing transformation of the Lord. So in other words, without a sober view, you cannot understand his promise, promises. Without a desire to be right with the Father, there is no propulsion to move you towards transformation. Come on, are you catching that tonight? If you're not really grasping with this with a sober view, there's no real movement. You don't really realize how much you need the Lord and how much that you need him every day to transform you. Yeah. But on the other hand, without holding to the powerful promise, what happens? You begin to sink into despair. You sink into faithlessness. The truth is, is you sink into rebellion to what God wants to accomplish in your life. See, you think that it's things like, I've just been discouraged. Uh, I've just been distracted lately in my walk. The truth is, is you've actually been despising the word of God and his promises to you. We're learning to live in the agonizing tension of both present realities. You must boldly and clearly identify your specific sinful actions on a weekly, daily, and hourly basis. You must, with immediacy, say immediacy. Immediacy. And without deflection, say deflection. Deflection. Compare your state with the holiness of Adonai. A person that is aware of the holiness of God is in constant tension over their own unholiness and yet ever confident of the ongoing transformation that's happening. Church, are you with us tonight? Yeah. This is what the Lord is clearly speaking to us about. It's what our prophecy during the worship time was about. It's actually coming to grips with our, our real state, where we actually are with the Lord and trusting that his promise is enough to transform us daily. See, this moves us from thinking about our, our uh, testimony from being something that was decades ago, and it moves it into, here's what God did for me today. today. Here's what God has done for me this week, because I've needed him to save me more today and yesterday and in the past few days than I ever recognized in the first decades that I was walking with the Lord. See, when you actually are alive to the word, somebody say alive. alive, when you're alive to the word in a personal way and the word is alive to you in a personal way, then you can identify with Paul's statement that we saw on Sunday from Pastor Eric out of Romans chapter seven. We're going to show you the same slide to help you to remember what we covered then. It says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. But that which is good, did that which is good then become death to me? 
Hell no. Nah. Is a more appropriate way for you to translate this passage. By no means is a neutered version so that it doesn't offend your Christian sensibilities. Paul is saying, absolutely not. No. No way. By no means. Hell no. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin. My goodness. It produced death in me through what was good so that the commandment, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We even had a few other translations on the slide to make sure that you're understanding the concept of sin becoming utterly sinful. The ESV says that it might become sinful beyond measure. Does that mean that the amount of sin in your life changed? No. It means that you are now recognizing the depth of sin that is there. Immeasurable sinfulness of sin might plainly appear is what the Amplified says. It's got to plainly appear to us in this process. And church, this is in fact what God is doing in our midst. He's causing us to recognize sin as sin. No more excuses for the people in this room. No more trying to placate in our own self because we just don't want to come to grips with what is really going on inside of our heart. It is through his word and his spirit that we're able to have the revelation of how utterly sinful we can be and how often that we are sinful. Yeah. Anyone who spent significant time in the Psalms will begin to see how perfect, how trustworthy the law of God is. How precious and eternal and faultless it is. When our loyalty to the Lord's standards and his standards keep us, uh, his standards keep us from friendly relations with our sin. When you view the word as pure and faultless and the guiding force in your life, it will keep you from having friendly relations with your own sin. And what I mean is this, many people read the word with a cold indifference until something piques their interest or tickles their fancy, and then they walk away feeling accomplished that they read their Bible and got something good. All the while, they give, they give their blatant sin cute pet names like, I didn't mean it that way, or you just don't understand, or I hear what you're saying, but that was not my intention. This This pet name for sin, these pet names for sin, they come from a wrong relationship with the word of God. If we get our relationship with the word of God correct, then it changes our relationship with our sin. So in other words, you have to let the living word of God divide between what is holy and what is common in you. Yeah, that that was a place for a better response than what you just gave. See, when you're actually interacting with the living word of God, it's got to divide between what is holy and common in you so that what is sinful can be identified, in fact, as super sinful. You've got to have that realization, and that comes through the word and through the spirit. You've got to see it to believe it. You have to see it so you can put it to death. You have to see your sin so you can repent from it. Look and live, my friends. This is what we are going to accomplish tonight. We're going to admonish and encourage this body to take a sober look at your sinful state. We are growing in this revelation, but today we have a word that is going to challenge us to truly look at our own carnal nature. Let's go to Numbers 21 together. If you're like us this week, you've probably read through this story many, many times because it was so impactful. Numbers 21, and we're going to begin in verse 8. Somebody say, look at it as you're turning there. Look at it. Numbers 21 and verse 8 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Church, can you agree with me that the kindness of God is beyond our ability to comprehend? Are y'all with us tonight? Yes. Yes. This is not the time to worry about uh, fighting with sick kids. This is a time you are here in the house of God, and the living word is going to do something for all of us. It's done something special inside of Peyton and me as we were studying. We would talk for a little while. We would cry for a little while. We would study some more. We would laugh. The Lord was moving on us, and I promise you that we've got something for you tonight. The kindness of God is beyond our ability to comprehend. Can somebody say amen? Amen. And I don't just mean the kindness here in verse 8 of God giving Moses the key to salvation for the very people. Listen to what I'm about to say. 
who let their internal discontentment become an external disgrace. See, I'm actually talking about the kindness of God to send snakes to bite his people in the first place. It was a kindness that God sent snakes. Do you know why? Because of their own behavior. They had internal discontent. The word says that they became impatient along the way. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? They became impatient along the way. And what happened was that their behavior as a result, their actual true state was showing that they were already snake bitten in their own lives and they just didn't know it. It was the kindness of God to actually send real life snakes to bite them so that they would then know that there is a problem that they must deal with. So pastor, you're going to have to help me out. Make sure I'm understanding. Okay. You're saying that God sent snakes to them so they would know their actual condition. That's right. That they were already snake bitten. And they were already snake bitten. Well, then consider this. Your years of faithless feelings, they're already snake bitten. Your slanderous sentiments and speech towards God and his appointed leaders, you're already already snake bitten. -bitten. Your impatient insolence, well, you're already snake bitten. You're already snake bitten. Your ungrateful groveling, you are already snake bitten. The solution is that anyone, everyone who actually looks at their own specific sinful state is then and only then able to live. Consider what 1 John chapter 1 and beginning in verse 8 says. Listen to this clearly. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in Ooh. us. Pastor, I'm not, I'm not declaring that I'm without sin. Don't you though? How was your week? Oh, my week was pretty good. And what do we mean by that? We mean that we didn't actually fall off the rails completely. We're like, I... I I had good days. I did good at work. Uh, Me and my wife got along pretty well. I mean, I have a pretty good time. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, this week, If we claim that we have not sinned today, and I don't just mean in the kind of generic sense that tries to get around the scripture, like the specific way that you know that you did, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Church, we've been preaching this for years, especially in the last few weeks, because the Lord is heightening our awareness of our own sinful state. Somebody say my sin. Our hope is that you're going to join us in this kind of repentance. We know that many of you are already doing this, and we could call you by name because we can see the effects of it in your life and in your growth. But many of you, though, are actually fraught with sin. And even as you sit here tonight, you're making concerted efforts to convince yourself that your walk with Jesus is A-OK, that things are going just fine. Or maybe worse yet, you're not even aware that your walk with Jesus is not okay. But this should not be. This is why we're bringing this word. You cannot be healed until you look your marriage issues in the face. You cannot be healed until you look at your parenting weaknesses dead in the eye. You cannot be healed until you look at your personal holiness with a sober judgment. Let's take a look at verse 9 in Numbers 21. It says this, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. They lived. See, Moses doesn't just shake his head up and down in agreement. He doesn't, he does more than just amen at the sermon. Oh, pastor, that was good. good Come on, that was good, Pastor Peyton. He does more than just fall down at an altar, making another powerless pledge to try to perform more proficiently. That's not what Moses does. Yeah, Moses did what God said. He made a bronze snake. He actually came face to face with, faced with his own state and the state of those entrusted to him. And in doing so, he made a way for others to be, uh, become 
just like him. You're going to need to say that again. You're going to need to help us so out tonight, Pastor. He actually came face to face with his own state and the state of those entrusted to him. And in doing so, made a way for others to be just like him. We're repeating it because you're going to want to remember that as we move forward. You're going to need to keep going with us tonight as we engage the scriptures. We're going to let the life-changing power of the word heighten the awareness of our own actual state. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to begin in verse 1. This is what the scripture says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Wow, what an incredibly beautiful picture that's being painted. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Somebody say, that's not good. That's not good. How would you respond if you heard about that kind of thing going on in your world? How would you respond if you were the poor man that was being taken advantage of? Well, of course, we're filled with all kinds of emotions. And some of you may have just envisioned your actions to get back at the rich man who was so greedy and heartless towards the poor man. But too often we identify with the victim in the story or put ourselves in the position of the hero or deliverer in the text. I hope you see where we're going to go with this. Take a look at verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. King David had never been more right than he was in verse 5. And here's how. Nathan had done a perfectly masterful job of making sure that David began to feel exactly what Adonai feels about David's sin from the previous chapter with Bathsheba. David has acted from a ruthless, sinful state, and his actions cause a burning anger to be brought against him from God Almighty. So because David thought he was speaking of someone else, he was very quick to render his judgment against it. Take that in for a moment. When he thought it was someone else's sin, he waylaid them. At least that's uh, just, just him. Come on now, church. Isn't that easier to see someone else's sin than your own? Aren't you ready to drop the hammer? I mean, we want to hold the standard, right? We're LCM. You got to hold the standard. You can look at somebody and waylay them. Until you realize something like this, that you're the man. David even renders the right recompense for the offense, just as Exodus 22, 1 says. When he says you must pay him back four times, that's exactly what it says in the law. It's exactly what it prescribes. It's exactly what it prescribes. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep or slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. David says you need to pay him back four times the amount. Yes, that is true. But the biggest question that we have for you tonight, church, is what does it take for you to recognize your own sin? What does it take for you to recognize that you are the man? Does it take snake bites to come so that you can recognize that you're already snake bitten? In your internal discontentment that has become some type of external disgrace that comes out in your words, that oozes out in your countenance, that is in everything that you say, it contaminates everything that you touch. What does it take for you to recognize that you are the man? 
Does it take a national prophet telling you a hypothetical story in order to get you past your own despising of God's word to be able to see your true state? What does it take for you to get past your own blindness to your own true condition? Now, we're going to expound on this, but you have to, we're going to expound on how the Lord's dealing with us. What we don't want is you to adopt our testimony and then call it your own. What we want for you is to ask yourself, what does it take for me to actually see my own sinful state? What I want in correction is for people to be kind to me. But what I am learning like this week, actually in the past five days, that has been repeating over the past few weeks, is that it takes my friends, like our pastors, our elders, people like Pastor Peyton, people like Elder Baj or Pastor Eric, it takes these kind of men to come to hit me with a sledgehammer and say, you are the man. You are sinning and need to stop it. It's infecting your family. God is not pleased with what you're doing. <gasps> Who? Me? Oh. What does it take for me to see it? It's because I'm so stinking rebellious in my own heart that I don't want the kindness. I think that I want it to be kind. I think that I want it to be sweet to me. That's what I would prefer. I can quote to you Psalm 141.5 that says, let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. I'll look at somebody like Pastor Judah and I'll say, thank you for that correction. But then I begin to despise it on my own heart and I ignore it completely. And then the Lord has to send Pastor Judah and Elder Baj. And I say, thank you. I will not refuse your instruction to me. And then I go away and I refuse it. My rebellion causes it to have to come like a sledgehammer to my face so that I can realize, wait, wait, oh my goodness, I've been sinning. Yes, the Lord has been trying to tell me. His kindness has been abundant, and now he's having to send a Nathan-like prophet to say, what are you doing? You are the man, and you have to come to grips with that. This is from my own life. It doesn't matter whether you consider me rebellious or not. God has been telling me that I am a rebellious man. God has been looking at me and I've been having to look at him and go, God, not only am I rebellious, but you're also showing me that I'm prideful. I'll believe in what I feel and what I think above everybody else, including you, God. Doesn't matter how many times you've given me a prophetic word, I'm still choosing to believe what I feel about this situation. I'm choosing to go off of what I think. Church, I'm having to come face to face with the concept that you are the man is the phrase that is being used towards me. It's not David. It's not only David. It is Wade. It is how I've been interacting with God, and it takes real men of God who have to keep coming back again and again because I'm too stubborn. I'm too prideful and rebellious to hear it any other way. You may be asking yourself or have asked yourself, why are we preaching the way that we have been recently about with open transparency? Why am I being so open about marriage and parenting? It's because I had this sinful attitude towards the Lord, actually despising his word by looking at many of the families in this body and saying, wow, there's so many marriage issues. There are so many parenting issues. There are so many team issues. There are so many uh, hidden motives. You know what the Lord told me? You are the man. You are the one committing the sin that you see so prevalent in everyone else. Can I tell you how much a, of a punch in the face that is? What is it going to take for you to look at your own sinful state? Like I said before we started uh, sharing just the personal things that are happening in our lives. I don't want you to hear our testimonies and then adopt them as your own. You're going to have to find out. 
what it's going to take for you to see your own sinful state. And then actually do something about it. One thing that I fell and fall, fall and pray to is when I know something is not right, like uh, reading the word with my wife or settling issues in our home, in order to make that not happen, we implement disciplines. But we implement the disciplines with actu- without actually dealing with the sin that is causing the fragment in our shalom. So just like I did with uh, the body, saying there's so many marriage issues and the Lord is like, you are the man, it allowed me to see how I had just had good, cute little disciplines that kept me from having to actually deal with my own sin. I want to tell you that disciplines can die out with enough distraction. You ever experienced that? I have a good discipline. I'm going to do this every day. You get distracted enough. Well, then the disciplines kind of die out or you make new ones. I want to tell you that deep deep convictions, they last a lifetime and they'll direct your every step. You know, we love the Lord. You know that we love this body. This is why we're so open with you. You can call us pastor, but do not call us perfect. Perfection is the very thing that we are all striving for until our king returns. So what does it take for you to come to the realization that you are the man? How many sermons does it take? How many jobs do you have to go through? How many fights with your spouse? How many blatant, awful rebellious acts do you have to see in your children before you come to the grips, you come to terms with you are the man. That is the beginning. Somebody say beginning. Beginning. That's just the beginning of the revelation that David is about to get. You realize that? We've led up to it, and you are the man is the beginning of, of David having to deal with this. What does it go on and say? Let's pick it up in, in verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12. Nathan said to David, you are the man. So, so Nathan stops there. Is Nathan done dealing with David? No. You're the man. That's not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. Yeah. Wow. The thing is, is you can't have someone... <laughs> Someone else can't get the revelation for you. You can have godly teams. That's why God is putting us in teams. That's why the body is building the body. They can help you, but they can't have the revelation for you. You have to come to grips with the fact that you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. Almost like that little ewe lamb was staying in that poor man's arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little for you, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? David is getting a remember series style testimony of his own life. I've watched our pastors and elders in this church do this really well. How many times has a pastor or elder sat down with you and reminded you of what God's done in your life? Nathan is doing this with David. What? God anointed you with, what God delivered you from, what God has put within your own arms. Come on, husbands and wives. Have you forgotten the precious nature of the one that God has given you? Some of you that should have just said, yes, I have forgotten how precious this is. I've forgotten how God-ordained this is. It's become commonplace to me. As a matter of fact, I really think that they're the problem in my life. God gave them to you. And if that isn't good enough, if that's not enough for you, 
if what God has done for you is just not good enough yet, he'll do more for you if you really needed it. But that's not the problem, now is it? The problem is your dissatisfaction, your faithlessness, your rebellion. You know, pride is a direct reflection of you despising the word of the Lord and doing what is evil. You want some eschatological revelations, but you're despising the revelation of, that the word is showing you about your own condition. You want something good for someone else or something good that sounds good in a teaching, all the while neglecting a revelation about your own condition. But you already knew what 2 Samuel 12 says because you're a scripturally rich environment. You're good students. But did you have the revelation that you are the man? If you know what the verses say, but you don't know what they say about you, you are despising the word of the Lord. If you know what it says, but you don't know what it says about you, that is actually despising the word of the Lord. Consider what Hebrews 6 and verse 7 says. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Because you're scripture-rich church, you know that the context of the immediate verses before this are people who are turning their back on the Lord. This is not as much about a land issue as it is the land of the cultivation of your own heart. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got to be careful if you keep getting blessings and blessings. You get a kingdom given to you like David. You get Israel and Judah. You get wife and husband like you've been given here. Children where you couldn't have them. Blessings beyond blessings. And you do not produce the kind of fruit that God is asking. You have to have a sober view of your state. You have to come to grips with the fact that you are the man. Because if you don't, there's, there's trouble. You're in danger of being burned. Church, I wish that I could tell you that I, was, that I knew that everyone in this room right now, everyone listening to me right now, would be able to make it in the kingdom. But I've been in this long enough to see many who were sitting here with the same type of life pattern as what you have here, who are no longer, not just with us as a church, they're no longer in the kingdom. They were a land that continually got rained upon, that continually received the seed and the right cultivation, but did not produce what God wanted because they never came to grips with the statement, you are the man. As we get ready to pick up in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, we have to come to grips with, we are the man. If things are not going right in your marriage, in your workplace, in your team unity formation meetings, in your relationships with anyone, if there is a fragment in your shalom and your first response is it's really their problem, you have missed the revelation of your own sinful state. Verse 9 says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You know, coming to terms with you are the man was the beginning of the revelation of David's true state. But wait, there's actually more. Nathan wasn't done. The greatness of God was being despised by David. He now knows of his guilt but he is having to see how much he has offended Adonai. The offense wasn't that, oh, I had the revelation that I'm the rich man who took the poor man's sheep. It was actually that he was despising the word of God, which caused all his other actions. We can't tell you tonight how much despising the word of the Lord in your life and his providence will lead to great sin that is utterly sinful. But this step is often missed in the vast majority of our lives. The word and spirit that was so rich upon David's life was completely ignored, and this led to David's evil behavior. This is sin against God himself. Did you catch that? 
Did he wrong Uriah? Some of you questioning if that was bad or not. Yes, murder yeah, is, is wrong. But the Just offense, go ahead and settle that. The offense was actually against God. Coming to grips with the fact that you are the man is the beginning of a revelation. David then learns what he's done to violate his relationship with God. And then David has to look at the specifics of his own state. Do you realize that Nathan didn't just kind of excuse that part? He went actually and said exactly what David had done. Not a generalization that I should have prayed more or I, I lost my temper a little or that I should have read the word more or maybe I could have been a little bit nicer in my presentation. But David is forced to know the fact of you are the man, David. This is exactly what you did with specificity. When your explanation of your sin is only general, you do not know how much you are the man. When your prayers sound like uh, what you've heard from the stage and what somebody else's words are instead of what you have been personally uh, dealing with, you do not know how much you are the man. When your testimony of what God has done entails things that are decades old instead of hours or days old, you do not know how much you are the man. Church, you have to know that you are the man, the one who has offended and turned from God. The revelation from Nathan to David, it started with, you are the man. Then, this is what you have done to the Lord. And third, this is how it has affected other people. Our sinful actions are an offense to God first. Have you viewed disagreements in your team or disagreements between you and your spouse or disagreements about how to raise children and you viewed it as the other person's problem? The offense is first with your God, with your king. And does not Romans 8, 7 say that the sinful mind is actually hostile to God? We have to grow in this revelation in order to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's see what David does in response to having this revelation start to settle in. Aren't you, don't you want to see what King David does here? Yeah. Let's look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The true revelation of our own condition starts with us realizing that it is not anyone else's fault. It's not anyone else's responsibility or their wickedness. It is our own. Don't tell me about what your dad did to you when you were four. Don't tell me about your terrible upbringing. Don't tell me about someone else. Start talking about yourself and asking God to show you these things. Remember now, David is the king. The king. He is the best among us. I mean, he's the one that acts... 13.22 says that he was a man after God's own heart because he would do all that God had. Remember that the last words of Jesus Christ in the Bible, in Revelation 22, says that he is, that Jesus says about himself in red letters, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The final words of Jesus are identifying as a son of David. But David here is guilty, and he has to come to terms with yeah. this. His revelation was not just of his guilt, but the one whom he had sinned against. When he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now David's revelation was only as good as the repentance that it brought afterwards. Take a look at verse 14. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. See, we have to come, and as we're understanding this, David has had a revelation of what you are the man really means. And subsequently has had true repentance, but there's something else that even comes after the true repentance. Yeah, then there comes a reckoning, a settling of accounts. The Lord absolutely saves us from the penalty of death that our sin caused through the transforming and atoning blood of Jesus. And there are still consequences. This is part of this entire process. The revelation of the fact that you are the man and the true repentance of your wickedness towards God. 
doesn't eliminate your needs for you to do things like present your bride to yourself, holy, without wrinkle, spotless before you. Because you now are realizing that you haven't done that, the consequences are you still have to work at it. You might be freed from the eternal consequences of your rebellion or pride or your faithlessness, but there's still work. There is a reckoning. You don't just get to say, okay, well, I'm forgiven now. We'll just walk on as if nothing happened. Now you still have to make things right. You still have to get after it and keep doing it correctly so that God's reckoning. You're saying, God, you are so good. You could have killed me over the kind of rebellion that Wade Sutherland was walking in, but you didn't. And because you have freed me from that, I now must have a reckoning of the years of bad seed that I have sown and the poor fruit that I have reaped. There is a reckoning that still must be accounted for. See, David has a reckoning both in the short term that he loses a son. He has a reckoning in the long term that the sword won't ever depart from his household. But David shows his actual love and friendship with the Lord by embracing the process and that produces a restoration in him that you have to take hold of tonight. And we even put it on a slide to help you to see it. Consider what is happening in David's life in 2 Samuel 12. He has a revelation. You are the man. A revelation that he was the offender towards God. And then there was repentance. I've sinned against the Lord. And no one else before I acknowledge that I have sinned against God Almighty. But then there is a reckoning. That settling of accounts where there are consequences to our sinful behavior and our sinful actions. But there is also restoration when we do this right. We want to read to you Psalm 51. And you're going to want to. Focus in on what we're teaching here in Psalm 51 because it is beautiful. As you're turning to Psalm 51, say, you are the man. You are the man. Psalm 51 is an absolutely beautiful, incredible psalm that you have read many times. But we're going to show you something that you have not seen before. We're going to show you something that's going to make this psalm even more beautiful for you. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Psalm 51. For the director of music. A Psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's not on the screen because the screen doesn't give you the title of the chapter of the psalm. Let me help you to understand something that God showed us just in the last 24 hours. You ready? This that I just read to you is not a pericope. It is not an insertion by publishers to help you. By the way, pericope means to cut around. They give you a title for a section, so they kind of show you what this section is all about. Pericopes are not supernaturally inspired. They're from a publisher to help you to make sure that you're seeing it the way they want you to see it. For the director of music, a psalm of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba is in the Hebrew text for Psalm 51. Wow. So this would be like David saying, I got a song that I've just written for everyone. I've written it for the director of music. I wrote it. I want to tell you the story of how I got this song. This was when the prophet Nathan came to me after I had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Pring. How's that for transparency? In the Hebrew text, verse 1 is for the director of music, a psalm of David. Verse 2 is when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And verse 3 says, Have mercy on me, O God. See, you thought it was beautiful before. David is so embracing the fact that he was the man that he actually starts his song by telling the sin that precipitated it. And it made it into the holy writ of scripture. What's it like 
when you really get a hold of the fact that you are the man. David is showing it to us here. What does he go on to say in verse 1? Have mercy on me, O God. Our version of verse 1. Yeah, our version of verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion to blot out my transgressions. Can you think of which ones he might be thinking about? Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Where do you see him hiding something? For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's incredible. Did you hear that? I've been sinful my whole life. From the time of my birth. No, from before birth, at conception, I began to be sinful. He is grasping this wholeheartedly because he's gotten a revelation that he, in fact, is the man. Look at what verse 6 says. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. In other words, the fault isn't yours, Lord. You've been good to me since before I was born. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'm going to be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. This is what repentance should actually look like in our lives. Lord, you've desired this. I haven't done it. So help me. Cleanse me. Transform me. Let me do this with joy because you are good and you are only good. I repent before you because you have done nothing wrong. It is on me. Now help me, mighty God. Let's pick up in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquity. Created me a pure heart. Why would you need a pure heart created? Because you do not have one. And you can't make it. And you cannot make it in your own strength. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Because he had not had one. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you view your offense towards God? Or when you know you have offended God, are you worried about the consequences like the pastors are going to get mad at you? Or do you realize it is separating you from his holy presence? When we view the Lord uh, below pastors, we say, oh, I, I take correction from the pastors, or I take correction from my brothers, and uh, I, I live in such a way just not to make them mad and you diminish the Lord, all you will ever do is change the behavior. If we correct you on something that is from the word that you are walking in blatant sin with, and your, your response is just, I will not do that so they don't see it, and then we can move on from it. You've actually never looked at the sinful flesh that is causing it. And this is what we're pointing at tonight. A revelation. True repentance. And a reckoning that our sins have real consequences. The penalty we are freed from through the blood of Jesus if we trust in him and let him wash us in his blood. But there are real consequences to our sin. And where we miss that is viewing, viewing uh, human authority uh, as God. And we do represent him. But you have to view your sin as I'm being separated from God. Lord, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Because that would be the end of me. If you're still afraid of the reckoning that comes from repentance, you actually haven't even made it to the starting line yet. Yeah. What are they going to think about me? You haven't realized you are the man. You haven't realized that you've been sinning against him and him only. And when you do that and you're still here to make a prayer to him, you're like, yes, whatever needs to be reckoned, Lord, let's let that happen so that we can move forward. There's far too many of us in this room that are worried about the consequences of your repentance. And so you never get to true repentance. 
you've never had the revelation that you are the man. Look how this continues, though. David is laying this down in a beautiful pattern. He showed it to us, and he shows it to us again in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We're not saying try harder. We're saying immediately go to him and let him come in and start doing the work. I can't do it. I can't tell you how my prayers have changed over the past few days and weeks. Lord, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to, I'm going to perform more perfectly. That's garbage. That's absolute garbage. Lord, I can't do this at all. My character is rebellious. I am nothing but prideful. I need you to transform me. I need you to restore to me. I need you to grant, to give me a willing spirit. I can't even say that I want to follow you unless you give me the spirit by which I can. Then, then, somebody say then. Then then I will teach transgressors your ways. See, we want to skip to this first, don't we? Oh, yeah. Let, let, me t- let me tell you. Let me tell you what your problem is. I know what the word says for you. Okay. Then, after you've gone through a revelation, actual repentance, a reckoning, then part of the restoration process is then you can take what you're learning and share it and teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. That's funny if you really think about it. Sinners will turn back to you. That means they were with you and they have to recognize their own sin, but you can help them turn back to him. Quit thinking about it like the the Christian and the non-Christian. We're talking about you still. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Wow. In light of 2 Samuel, that means a lot. Oh God, you who are my God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Yeah, you got a song to sing. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You're not after something that skips my heart on the issue and tries to show you something based on a formula. You're not after sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings if my heart isn't rightly connected to this, if I haven't had the revelation. My sacrifice You want to know what I'm going to give, oh God? It's a broken spirit. It's a broken and a contrite heart because I have come to terms with the the statement that you are the man. God, you won't despise it when I actually come to you this way. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I just thought he said that God didn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want sacrifices in place of your heart. He wants your heart as the main sacrifice. And then the other things that he has told you to do become acceptable to him. My goodness, what, a, what does restoration look like? The restoration of David and his walk with the Lord encouraged David to have the restoration of Zion. He wanted restoration for everyone around him because it was a, something real that was happening in his life. Yeah, David is the man. He's the man who came to full grips with the reality and the revelation of his own sinful state. He reveled in full repentance of what he had done to the Lord and his fellow men. He reckoned with the consequences of his own life, and he was fully restored to a place of being useful in the kingdom of God on earth. His life didn't end there. He got it right when he turned to the Lord, and he repented like a man. But he first had to come to grips, was that he was the man. He was the offender. Listen to 2 Samuel 18 as we pick up in verse 1. David mustered, mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. Hey, Pastor, can can you guys grasp this before Pastor takes on in verse 3 and keeps going with this here? The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. Do you remember what he didn't do that got him in all the problem with Bathsheba in the first place? Was in the springtime when kings went off to war, he did not go off to war. You know what David's going, uh, 
I'm going with the troops. No, I'm not staying here back at the castle. I know, I know what staying at the palace does. I'm going with you guys. I, I, think that's, I think that's showing that David really is the man. Yeah, he really is the man. And let's pick up in verse 3. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they don't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. When you, get, when you get the revelation that you are the man and repent like David, you become worth more than 10,000 men who will not repent. That's good. Yeah, no, let, let's say it, say it again because it's, it's fixing to get a lot better. When you are one man that will repent, right, repent like David, is worth more than 10,000 men who don't repent. But there's another way to view this process. Take a look at this slide on the screen. There is a footnote in most of your Bibles that if you'll take a look at it, but the men said you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care, but you are worth 10,000 of us. The footnote in most of your Bibles should say, for now there are 10,000 like us. Like we said, one man who repents well is worth more than 10,000 that won't. Can somebody say amen? Amen. And with you looking at this on the screen, it is also true that one man who refuses to despise the word of the Lord and acts like a real man of God yeah. is capable of making 10,000 more men just like him. Come on now, this is what is going on, and you can see it in David's life. You are the man when you repent so concisely and so courageously that other men want to be just like you. Because David chose to look at his sin and acknowledge that he was the man, but repented fully, he was not cast from the Lord's presence and was not removed from his kingship. In fact, he inspired 10,000 men who wanted to protect each other just like David wanted to do for them. I will march out with you this day. Well, we cannot afford to lose you. Well, I want to fight and protect you. Do you notice whenever he stayed in the city during the Bathsheba event, that was David making a decision on his own? But he ends up staying in the city, but he made that decision with a team. Interesting. See, as we near a close tonight, in our last few minutes together, we're imploring you to take to heart what we've been sharing with you. That there would be a greater revelation of your own condition. Yeah. And that it would produce noticeable repentance in your life. How can you repent of things that you're not even aware of? How can you put your foot on the serpent's head when you don't know where the serpent is? How can you, how are you able to do these things? You have to come to grips. You have to get a greater revelation of your own spiritual state. You have to understand what your sinful state looks like. You will never have more insight to anyone else than you do into your own life. Husbands, you don't feel like you can get enough direction for your family, it's because you don't have enough insight into your own state. When you get insight into your own state, the Lord will rain down his revelation about where your family should go. Well, my wife is more prophetic. Stop it. Get a hold of your own spiritual state. Take the blinders off and God will move in your life powerfully. When you learn to do exactly what David did, you're going to get the same results that David got. We want this whole body to be like the blind man in John 9 who had his blindness healed. Yeah. John 9, picking up in verse 9. Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself, who? The blind man. Says, I am the man. And they ask, how then were your eyes opened? They demanded. <laughs> they demanded. They want to know how his blindness got healed. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go get in Siloam and wash. So I went ahead and I washed and then I could see. Do you see his obedience to Christ healed his blindness? 
He had to come face to face with, I am actually blind and I'm in need of Jesus to heal me. And whenever he allowed Jesus to put the mud on his eyes, then he could see. Isn't that counterproductive if you can't see to pack it with mud? <laughs> Some of you view or treat your repentance much like, why would I do that? It just seems more difficult. It seems counterproductive to do that. I would just rather change how things look than change what's actually going on in the inside. We were discussing. I'm going to take a brief aside. Look, we're at one hour, and uh, I feel so strongly this is something we're going to need to come to grips with tonight. We were discussing how do we really, really communicate, get, get the body to see just like we're having to see. Well, now it's kind of come to me. How did it come to our attention that we have some serious sin issues? We started to listen to the corrections that were being brought to us and not view it as I need to change my behavior in this area. I need to change my disciplines. We started to dig a little bit deeper. Why am I doing that? Why am I being corrected for that? It's not be just, just because I'm prideful and I said something I shouldn't, so I should focus on my words and how I say things. You have to go a little bit deeper and say, I was being corrected for this. And thank you for the correction. Not now things are better. Thank you for the correction because now I just got a GPS tracking device on my sinful nature. And I'm going to take it a thousand miles deep until I get down to the core of my soul. Perhaps you might reflect on some of the corrections that you've received as as of late. And ask yourself if you just changed the surface of your life. Or if you've actually dug down into the depths to try to understand and actually look at your sinful state and admit, I am the man. We want to remind you of this slide as we approach a close. You have to have a revelation of your own sinful state. Realize that you are the man. You are the one who has offended God. And then repent by acknowledging, I have sinned against God, Lord, I, you and you alone, I have sinned against. And you have to be a man to face the reckoning, the settling of accounts to make things right so that you can actually have restoration. Do you notice we were in chapter 12 when Nathan is rebuking David? But in chapter 18, he's still leading the army. He's still leading the nation. God is not looking to cast you off or cast you from his presence. He's showing us how to actually draw near to him. And this is how we do it. But we can't do it just by Christian pleasantries and Christianese and nice one-liners that sound good that really inspire you. This is just as raw as it gets. You're just going to have to ask yourself if you actually love the Lord. If you are having issues in your relationship with purity. If you're having personal purity issues, if you're having thoughts that are offensive to God, if you actually hate your brothers and you're just changing the surface level and you've never actually come to grips that you really just love you more than anyone else, well then tonight you need to come to grips and admit that, yeah, you've definitely done things wrong to people in this body, but first, you've offended God and he's watching and you can't hide it from him. To come to that realization is what is going to cause you to go to the next level in your walk. When you realize that you get corrected and you crumble for days, weeks, or months at a time, then you're not walking through this process. You've got to ask God to show you what is going on in your life. You've got to ask him to reveal it, and I can tell you for a certainty that he's already been trying to reveal it to you. He's already been having brothers. He's already been letting the word. He's already letting his spirit already correct you. You've just been despising it. That can be no more for this house. Church, you got to understand that victory is not when you do not need to repent. It is not a good week because you didn't have to repent from anything. Victory is when you are the man in repentance. Yeah. You're the one that's saying, you are a holy God, and I am now comparing myself not to what I think, but I'm comparing myself to you, and I realize I need a lot of help. You are the man who needs the revelation of what your sinful state is like. 
You are the man that needs the repentance to go through the reckoning so that you can have restoration, so that you can advance the kingdom of God on earth. For our final scripture here, I'm going to talk through Mark 10, or Pastor Peyton is. Mark 10, 46, and I'm going to read it because it is so good, and it's going to give us an answer or how we're going to respond to this message. Mark 10, 46, then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesse, son of David, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. As you sit here tonight, don't let your carnal flesh rebuke you and tell you to be quiet. But begin to let the shout of Son of David, have mercy on me, begin to rise. Because Jesus stopped and he said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. What are you asking Jesus for tonight? I can tell you what the blind man said said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Our altar time is going to be very, very clear for you tonight because you are both the man who has sinned and the man who can rise up to be the man who contends with his sin like one who has a heart for God. This altar tonight is you saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This altar is for you tonight to come and get revelation of your own state. Stand with me now. Mighty God, we come before you and we are crying out like Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Move in the heart of your people, Lord, to give revelation about our actual state here in this house tonight.